This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we'll be nearing the end of chapter 12 and concluding a four-part message series on the foes of the king. Have you ever wondered, what is wrong with this world and why do people act the way they do? You're not alone. There are enormous social, political, environmental, and economic problems that plague our existence. God has provided insights to our predicament in Scripture. There is a deep-rooted problem that has contaminated everything about this universe. There is also a solution, but mankind's fallen nature resists that solution to its own peril. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So join with me here as we read verses 38 through 45 now of the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at God's solution to the human predicament for particular lessons, all right? The Bible says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation." A little hard to understand here, this last portion, a little lesson on what happens in the spiritual world, so relax, we'll cover everything here. But first of all, I want you to notice the lesson number one from this text concerning God's solution for the human predicament is the audacity of a rebellious heart. And the scribes and Pharisees represent that very clearly here for us. They demonstrate their wretched condition more clearly than the previous scene. And remember, in the previous scene, they were questioning Jesus. They were spreading rumors about the origin of his power, saying, this guy operates by satanic power. But they had just witnessed a miracle from Christ and heard a clear testimony about his divinity. But instead of acknowledging him, instead of recognizing who he was, they challenged him to satisfy their curiosity. Did you catch that? When they said, well, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But the point is, church, because they had already determined in their hearts to deny Christ or to reject his offer of salvation, and for that I want you to see verse 24 here again, when they said, this man cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So they had already determined in their hearts that Jesus was satanic, that Jesus was demonic. So another sign from Christ wouldn't have accomplished anything. It really would only serve their slanderous agenda to say, see, another demonic sign. 
But because of their arrogance and pride in their hearts, maybe they thought that they were giving Jesus an opportunity to prove that he was not demonic. But church, Jesus is not concerned with his reputation at all. Now, the foes of the king, the scribes and Pharisees here, may have addressed him by a respectful title. The word here in Greek is didaskalos, the one who teaches. So, teacher, give us a sign, but don't be fooled, church, by their pleasantry. That pleasantry is only superficial. They already hate him in their heart. And in fact, they had already begun plotting his crucifixion. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. The reason for that, church, is because they needed Roman approval before they can send anybody to execution. So they were already plotting to crucify him. They were already plotting to destroy him because of the rebellious heart, because of the audacity of their heart. So really asking for a sign, it it wouldn't accomplish anything. The motivation of the heart is really clear. Because Jesus says in verse 34, How can you, being evil, speak what is good? So Jesus already gave them the verdict on their hearts. And that's why he said, I'm not going to give you a sign because they suppressed the truth. You see, it's not that they needed more proof about the identity of Christ. It's not that they needed further information to confirm who Jesus was because they had already determined in their hearts that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. So really what they're doing here, they're suppressing the truth. And I say this because I'm borrowing from the language of Paul in Romans 1 verse 18. So therefore, their request is not genuine. These are a group of truth suppressors. By the way, The Apostle Paul clarifies these fascination with miraculous signs that particularly the Pharisees had. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24. For indeed, this is Paul speaking, Indeed, the Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, It was a cultural thing, a fascination that particularly the Pharisees had with signs and wonders. And this is written by, the words of Paul here, by a former Pharisee. And I wonder, church, if the people who today say, well, if God showed up to me, if only I saw a sign from God or a miracle from ever, then I'd believe him. I wonder if they follow the same logic here from the scribes and Pharisees. You mean to tell me you need more evidence of God's existence? You mean to tell me you don't have enough evidence of his love and power and nature and attributes than looking at your own life and looking at the world around you? Don't be like the truth suppressors here. There are plenty of evidence here for his existence, nature, and character. How do I say that? Because Romans 1, verse 20, Paul says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So we don't need more evidence about the existence of God. We don't need more evidence about the nature of Christ, his ministry, his purpose, church. Many people decide to ignore both natural and specific revelation about the existence of God or about the nature of God. And Paul again describes the sad state of their soul when he says in Romans 1 verses 21 through 22, these are for people today also who deny God. Paul describes this reality. He says this, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile on their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Demanding another sign from Jesus reveals the darkness of the human heart because of a rebellious attitude towards the revelation that has already been given, both natural outside and specific here in the Word of God. In other words, when people say that they need more evidence, when people say that they're not convinced by Scripture, they're not convinced by the clarity of the natural world, what they're saying to God is this, your revelation is incomplete. 
Your revelation is unclear and insufficient. I need more. Can you think, church, of anything more audacious than this and rebellious? But that leads us to lesson number two here concerning the solution from God to the human predicament. Not only do we need to understand the audacity of the rebellious heart, clearly being represented here by the scribes and Pharisees, but I want us to understand and appreciate the sufficiency of a revelatory book. According to Christ, Jesus' foes here, the scribes and Pharisees, belong to an adulterous generation. Not necessarily because they were unfaithful to their spouses, but because he's talking about spiritual betrayal here. Just like God once referred to ancient Israel and Judah, Jesus is using the same imagery here, declining Christ. Those who reject the claims of the gospel, those people who say, I don't need your Jesus, I'm okay, I don't need that. It's not a matter of choosing one religion over another. It's a matter of committing spiritual harlotry. Those folks commit spiritual adultery. The Bible provides enough evidence about the ministry, the identity, and the purpose of Christ. In church, that is the very reason why Jesus, in verse 39, points them to the Old Testament, to the story of Jonah. In other words, Jesus is telling them, you need a sign? I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm going to point you to the Bible. In fact, by bringing up the story of Jonah, he not only validates that narrative, but he teaches them that the prophets stay in the belly of the fish, typifies his death, burial, and resurrection. So let me explain exactly what I mean by this. He validates the narrative. In other words, he tells them, Jonah is not a mythical character. Jonah is a historical character. In other words, he was a real man, and he really experienced the miraculous power of God being preserved inside the belly of the fish. So when people say, well, that, the Bible's full of myth. No, this is true history, and Jesus is validating that story. By the way, he also validates the story of Adam and Eve. He also validates the story of Noah and the ark. By bringing up those characters from the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, this is not poetic, this is not mythical, but real history. So he validates that in the case of Jonah here. He teaches them that the story of Jonah typifies death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The technical name of this is called typology. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y, typology. Okay, which means that that story in the Old Testament, Jesus explains exactly the purpose of the book of Jonah in your Bible. And the purpose of that book is to point to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, I, wanna, I need to make a disclaimer here. Jesus is not drawing a personality parallel between him and Jonah for the very simple reason that the runaway prophet, or if you want to call him the chicken of the sea, does not prefigure Christ because he hesitated to obey God. That's not the case with Jesus. Furthermore, Jonah failed to demonstrate compassion to unsaved people. That is not the case of Jesus Christ. For that reason, Jonah can never be a prefiguration of Christ. Rather, that whole story typifies the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Luke sheds light into this whole thing for us when he describes the same scene here, the parallel passage. He says in Luke 11, verse 30, But as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. In other words, church, Jesus' works and words reveal sufficiently God's solution to the human predicament, God's plan of salvation, very clearly. And ironically, these guys were asking for a sign, and Jesus says, you're looking at the sign. In church, Scripture accomplishes a lot more than signs and wonders. Why? Because we have everything recorded. The Word of God will never pass away. For this reason, we should never go anywhere else to learn about God, the condition of man, or the solution about the problem of sin. Why would we go anywhere else when the revealed Word of God is sufficient to describe all of those for us? 
2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So church, we don't need to go anywhere else to learn about ourselves. We need to go to the Bible to see what the Bible says about the human nature, and therefore the solution for every one of our problems. Why would we go anywhere else when Jesus says very clearly, the Bible is sufficient? When the Bible says very clearly, that scripture is sufficient. You want to be equipped for every good work? Go to the Bible. You want to be adequate in God's eyes? Go to the Bible. You want to be trained in righteousness? Go to the Bible. You want to be how to learn how to be a better man or a better woman? Go to the Bible. Because it says the word of God is sufficient and it's inspired of God and profitable for teaching and all of these things so that we can be equipped for every good work. So we don't need to go anywhere else. And what that means in practical terms, church, is this. The elders of this church should fire me if I ever stop preaching the Bible. Preachers who use the Bible as springboards for their ideas feed their congregations junk food. You don't need to know my opinion about the Bible. You need to know what the Bible says about the Bible. My opinion is completely irrelevant. Nothing can be more dangerous to a church than the opinions of men. When that happens, congregations become fan clubs and more alarming they rob Christ of his rightful place in the church. May we die before we allow this to happen at Grace Baptist Church. Scripture is more than revelatory. According to its self-disclosure, I want you to know this book is living. Did you know that? Listen to this, Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Church, can you say the same thing about Shakespeare? No, you can't. Can you say anything about J.K. Rowling or the, the Lord of the Rings or your favorite literature? No, because the Bible is the only book that's alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's reading you while you're reading it. At best, therefore, every other literature stimulates the mind, stirs up the heart. They may educate, they may enlighten, and even inspire and inform. But only the Word of God transforms. Why? Because it's living and active. Sufficient information, sufficient revelation to tell us about the nature of God, the nature of people, and the solution for the human predicament. According to this passage, then, that we're studying concerning God's solution to the human predicament, not only do we need to understand the audacity of a rebellious heart, the sufficiency of a revelatory book, but also we need to understand and appreciate, according to verses 41 and 42, the supremacy of a righteous Savior. Now, I need you to understand what's going on here, and that's why I say we will do well to follow the example of Christ here. He angers his foes here, not for the purpose of getting them mad, but he angers them by placing the redeemed Ninevites in a better position than theirs. And that's why I tell you, he is not concerned a bit about his reputation here. This is not a popularity contest for Jesus. He's not concerned about his popularity. He's more concerned about the truth. And that is the example we should follow. He infuriates these guys by telling them that the redeemed Ninevites, ancient Assyrians, heathen folks that repented, are in a better position than the religious scribes and Pharisees. Wow. Just like Jonah, these guys thought that God should never have saved the Ninevites. Just like Jonah, these guys had a problem. They thought that they were the only ones worthy of salvation. And tragically enough, they were outside of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, Assyrians of old will be resurrected and they will judge you because they made it to the kingdom of heaven because they repented. What a frightening statement, church. 
When we're reading this, I mean, it, this should bring tears to your, to your eyes and sadness to your heart because Jesus just prophesied that they would be condemned and judged. That generation of opponents of Christ would not repent, and therefore they stood condemned. And obviously, that is why I tell you, church, that Jesus was a lot more concerned about the truth than he was with popularity. He could care less about the rumors about him. He did not care at all that they were calling him satanic, that they were questioning his motives, second-guessing him. He was just so consumed by the truth in a very compassionate way. Because remember, last week we saw that he offered the kingdom to these guys. He says, if I perform by the power of God, which is the case, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, enter the kingdom of heaven. The opportunity is here. But that they, they would not do that because their hearts were so hardened. Jesus shocks them even more now when he explains his supremacy. We're talking about the supremacy of Christ. First of all, he tells them that he outranks prophets. That's in verse 41. Now, Jonah preached repentance. That's what Jesus means here. Jonah preached repentance reluctantly after his moment of time out, after he was vomited from the belly of that fish. The runaway prophet preached repentance, a crucial ministry. But listen carefully, church. He could only lead people to the true God. Listen to this. According to John... The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about Jesus Christ. So you see why he outranks prophets? Because prophets can only point to God. Jesus is God. He points to himself because he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus' opponents here are fuming at this point, obviously, because they would say, how dare? He placed himself above the prophets. Oh, if only they would have read Colossians 1 verses 15 through 15, they would have been even more furious. Imagine their outrage if they read that passage from Paul. By the way, a former Pharisee, talking about Christ, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And church, that is why he can say, I outrank prophets, I am greater than Jonah. Someone greater than Jonah is here, and you're still looking for a sign? But he not only outranks prophets, he outranks kings. Look at verse 42 again. Now he shatters his popularity. Again, if he's concerned with being popular with that group, that is over. Jesus notifies them that the queen of Sheba will be resurrected and will judge you, this evil generation. If you're not familiar with this lady, the queen of Sheba, her story is in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1-13. through 13. Write that down so you can read it later. But the author of 1 Kings writes about her visit to Solomon. Jesus affirms that she made it to the kingdom of heaven. So the queen of Sheba, an ancient Gentile, confesses that Yahweh is the true God and therefore Jesus says she will be resurrected one day and will judge this evil generation. Here's what else I want you to see here, church. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, built the first temple in Jerusalem. That temple represented the presence of God among people. But again, it was only a representation, folks. What Jesus is telling them is this, something greater than Solomon is here. The presence of God could only be represented until then, but now that Jesus is here, God is here. Why? Because the Bible says very clearly, He is Emmanuel. Matthew quotes Isaiah when he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So friends, 
Think of the irony of this. These people are asking the God of the universe for a sign, but God with us, Emmanuel, is staring them in the eye while they're looking for a sign saying, that is not enough for us. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He is greater than the kings because he is the king of kings. And remember what we've been talking to you about the gospel of Matthew. What is the very purpose of Matthew, the gospel writer here, church, to describe Jesus as the king? The king is here. But according to scripture, concerning God's solution to the human predicament, not only do we need to understand the audacity of a rebellious heart, the sufficiency of a revelatory book, the supremacy of a righteous savior, but the last lesson today, we'll finish with this one, verses 43 through 45, the vulnerability of a reprobate mind. In order to illustrate the sad spiritual condition of his opponents here, Jesus gives them a little lesson on demonology. What happens in the spirit world with demons. That's what he means by unclean spirit. But according to Jesus, cast out demons try to repossess their victims. That is what he's saying. We don't know what the waterless places are. We have no idea. This is the spiritual realm. So whether that's a spiritual desert, we don't know. But the point is, there's a metaphor in this explanation here that's very clear to understand. The house that he talks about here, represents someone who may have been delivered by God from demonic activity and put his life in order and still refused to come to Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Because notice that the place is unoccupied. Jesus says, the demons go back and find the place unoccupied. Easy target for a home invasion. So, the house may be in order, but the person remains vulnerable for demonic activity seven times more severe if they refuse to come to Jesus Christ. And tragically, this reality described the state of that generation who witnessed the earthly ministry of Christ and yet refused to come to him and say, well, he's doing this by the power of Satan. So church, what is the lesson for us in all of this? Pay close attention to this. Listen carefully. More important than sweeping the house. Okay, and again, I'm speaking metaphorically to use the same illustration that Jesus is using here. I'm referring to your life. More important then sweeping the house, clean up your life, clean up your act, start new habits, turn on a new leaf in life, give up old habits. More important than that, you want to make sure Jesus is in the house. You want to make sure he lives in you because Colossians 1 verse 27 says, Christ is the hope of glory, Christ in you. So you want to make sure that your house is not left unoccupied. And by the way, did you know that he can clean house a lot better than you? Furthermore, no one will dare burglarize the living quarters of the one who was greater than the prophets and the kings. Friend, your life may appear to be in order. But unless Jesus lives in you, you are vulnerable for demonic activity. Whether in the form of possession, like in the many cases we see in the Gospels, or satanic influence. Which, by the way, today is by far the preferred method of the kingdom of darkness. Satan prefers to work incognito. The Bible says very clearly in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that he prefers to disguise as an angel of light. And that's why you don't see demons running around. So Jesus clarifies, therefore, the human predicament. People who do not welcome him are vulnerable for a break-in. This particular group of scribes and Pharisees was lost. They were a lost cause because they rejected Christ willfully, conscientiously, persistently, not out of ignorance, but in spite of irrefutable evidence. Instead, they demanded another sign from the very one who is God himself. They were looking 
at the face of God when we're talking to Jesus Christ, they did not realize that they were talking with the one who is the radiance of the divine glory in the exact representation of his nature, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, description of Christ. That's the tragedy of the human heart. That is the predicament that we all face. And that leads us to the concept we were talking about in the beginning, God's solution to that problem. According to the Bible, humanity does not have primarily a social or political or physical or even an emotional problem. We all have those, of course. We have needs that need to be met. But primarily, our problem is spiritual. That is why the world is the way it is, because we turned our backs to God. We have a spiritual problem. Therefore, the government can never fix it. We can't vote our way into fixing the human problem. The family will never solve the problem. They, they can help. But good health will not solve the problem. It certainly helps. Having money in the bank account will never solve the problem. In fact, we may create more problems, but it certainly helps. But mankind has a spiritual predicament that the Bible states very clearly. And this is it, church. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. That is the human problem. Many people agree with this problem. They, they realize that's true. I, I, I understand that humanity has a sin problem, but they fail to deal with the problem in the proper way, which is by recognizing Christ, the only solution to the problem. Our solution is not a system. Our solution is not a movement. It's not a set of rules. The only cure for the world is a person. His name is Christ. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.